This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ladies and gentlemen, July 13th, 2023, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. And as this podcast often is, it's a bit of a conversation about the conversation, what topics are dominating the public discourse, particularly in the digital media world, and what what can we learn from analyzing how that those issues are being talked about, what does it say about the culture, which ideas are prevailing, or what's just relevant and interesting about what's going on these days. Um, so coming up, uh, strange Jonah Hill cancellation attempt, but beyond the cancellation attempt and whatever Me Too implications it might have or about the battle of the sexes, I think it's way more interesting to analyze uh, in terms of how the line has now been blurred about what should remain private as opposed to what uh, it gets publicized in the modern age. Um, New York Times makes some pretty uh, strong allegations against Clarence Thomas, or at least puts a pretty dire headline um, suggesting that the Supreme Court has become corrupted by you know some uh, some activities of Clarence Thomas. And so I look into, wait, has has the Supreme Court been contaminated? Is there a cancer growing on the Supreme Court? Uh, or was this just another fake news headline? And then a strange dynamic in that a lot of media outlets, particularly liberal-leaning, decide to all of a sudden start to write critical articles associating certain phenomenon uh, with conservative influencers or the right wing. But then you look at what topics that they're accusing of uh, or trying to pin on the right, and you're like, wait a second, these are pretty good things, right? And in this case, there's an article equating any fitness, anyone who's into fitness with the right wing and and uh, criticizing a movie that was celebrating those uh, who free children from sex trafficking. And just very odd that so many media sources would want to try to associate these things, which seem to be positive, which with their cultural enemies. I thought that was very interesting. But far more important, the first real threat, is it the first real threat to Twitter's dominance of the infosphere? Um, Facebook and Meta and Mark Zuckerberg this week release their competitor to Twitter, a kind of scrolling newsfeed of micro-published thoughts, content, photos, what have you, called Threads, and it was a big hit right off the bat, at least in terms of user uh, user downloads. It was the fastest app other than ChatGPT ever to 100 million downloads, and you can kind of consider, wait a second, is that truly impressive? When it was already kind of leveraging the user base through the Meta's constellation of other apps, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, uh, uh, WhatsApp, ha- what have you, and we already have 3 billion users as really getting, uh, you know, peeling off 100 million of those really that impressive, I think somewhat, but not quite as much as that number would be indicative of. Um, but, you know, once again, and, and sure, anyone who's listened to this podcast, you know that these social media platforms and the battles between them go way beyond just a, a couple of websites or apps battling over users. I mean, this is core to how information is disseminated, how narratives are formed, and what controls the public mind in this country, in this world. And Elon 
going back to you know the tweet that kind of set off his interest, or at least expressed his interest in buying Twitter. As he mentioned, given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles funda- fundamentally undermines democracy. And while he might be overstating the case just a touch, I don't think he can overstate the importance of Twitter and Meta and Facebook and Instagram as the vessels, uh, their impact on the critical consciousness, on the collective consciousness, on the public mind, and how powerful these these uh, information platforms are. So if you've got Twitter that happens to be going in one direction, obviously crafted by Elon Musk in the, the name of, you know, in term, what his supporters will say in the name of free speech and a more open digital public square, and his critics will say just trying to placate far-right elements or God knows what, if there is now a challenge to that, how the dust settles on this battle is going to have a major, severe impact on you know on narrative formation and and the impact on the world and the public mind. Um, so you know what what's really going on here? Well, first obviously the tribalism is going to split people into supporters of Threads versus supporter of Twitter. I mean it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, I saw a lot of uh, uh, more liberal oriented you know either friends of mine or influencers that did pop onto Threads and were celebrating Threads and so happy um, that it was a challenge now to Twitter because okay great now we don't have to deal with Elon Musk anymore um, and we'll see if their their predictions are true um, and also really interesting and kind of peculiar uh, Adam Singer a, a really good tweeter he mentioned all the same people who for years loudly stated Zuck was undermining our democracy are now shilling his company's new product extraordinary and that's really interesting right because right after the 2016 election Mark Zuckerberg was public enemy number one Oh, Facebook and its allowance of corrupt materials um, or the allowing it to be gamed and not, you know, enforcing enough censorship and content moderation. That's how Donald Trump got elected. And oh, my God, the, the, the sky's falling and it's Mark Zuckerberg's fault. All of a sudden, all these people, because he is now at least seen as a counterweight to Elon Musk, who's been far more explicit about what his politi- political leanings are, while Zuck's been a little bit more, you know, kind of wishy-washy and hazy about it. Now that, that you know, Zuck has been pres- positioned as an enemy or rival of Elon Musk, all of those people who thought he was the devil, that met, that Facebook was the reason that Donald Trump won, they're all now flocking to threads and super supportive of t- threads. And I think it's really, and it's an unfortunate indicator of how tribal we are, but hey, that's the way things go sometimes. Um, so will, what's going on with threads? How much impact has it had so far? And is it going to displace Twitter as the main source of you know news dissemination and, and thought leadership? Okay, I mean, my first impressions. Right, first off, uh, right now, Twitter, in terms of gathering news, what I use it for at least, gathering news, being exposed to great materials, links, thoughts, what I've built up and following really good people on Twitter is irreplaceable. There's no way that threads can displace that anytime soon. However, the question becomes, does everybody use Twitter for that? And there are a lot of people, and as a really shrewd uh, uh, pro, you know, uh, entrepreneurial friend of mine who started a lot of successful websites said, I mean, he said what threads did that Twitter was unable to do for a long time was essentially uh, get the normies to micropublish. Right. So all these people that are on Instagram that are posting lots of pictures that, you know, are super uh, influencery and super active on social media, the people who weren't really into news and thought leadership and ideas and the stuff that I'm into, they didn't really participate in Twitter. They didn't do a lot of that. But right off the bat, with threads essentially plugging in to the Instagram and Facebook social graph that they already have and just allowing you to follow all your friends and have all your friends follow you from Instagram, they got all those people to engage in a Twitter-like activity, to micro-publish, to put their thoughts out there, right, in that kind of public conversation. Um, so that that definitely is cause for concern for Twitter um, because there's a 
big, you know, a massive wave of people who Twitter has been trying to get on the platform to use the platform, never able to. But Threads was able to do that. Um, but then the question becomes, is this going to last? And I'm there. I'm a little more skeptical because I think a lot of the people that are using Threads and seem to have a lot of excitement right off the bat. That's just initial dopamine hits from one, you know, the excitement of a new platform, getting new followers, getting new likes. And all of a sudden, let's say you get a, a social media or an Instagram DM from a friend that does usually spark spark a bit of a dopamine hit, right? So if all of a sudden you're getting new new messages and new interactions with friends of yours on threads, because those are your friends from Instagram that reported over to threads, you're going to get a dopamine hit from those. We're going to know a lot more in anywhere from two to four weeks after this first wave of fo- you know new followers and the, ver- the novelty wears off and people aren't getting that like, you know, w- just innate uh, uh, dopamine boost from all these new followers. So we'll have to see about that. Um, interesting to read an interview with Adam Mosery, who uh, has been at Meta for quite a while. He's the he's essentially the president of Instagram. Adam Mosery, who for some reason is not more widely known. I mean, he's one of the most important guys in social media, which means he's one of the most uh, most important people in dissemination of information and news and media. Period. But he essentially is the head of Instagram, reports directly to Mark Zuckerberg, for all I know. Um, and what he mentioned in an interview with The Verge about why they started up Threads. Um, obviously, Twitter pioneered the space. And there are a lot of good offerings out there for public conversations. But just given everything that was going on, we thought there was an opportunity to build something that was open and something that was good for the community that was already using Instagram. All right. So Mosery is really clear that like, listen, we're trying to leverage off the community and and the user base that we've already built with Instagram. Right. He's like, okay, if we could just take everybody's on everybody on Instagram and just allow them to uh, engage in kind of a, a supplemental activity, which is just typing messages to each other, posting pictures to each other in that manner the same way on Twitter. I mean, we think they will want to do that alongside Instagram. And as long as we maintain the social ties and social graph from Instagram, that's going to be really powerful. And maybe that thesis is correct. Um, he mentions that it was very, very specifically that Meta made the onboarding process easier by letting you auto-populate your account information from Instagram to Threads. Think the same thing. They're trying to use the pre-existing advantage they have with the Instagram user base to build this platform more quickly. And then in terms of the rivalry with Twitter and whether or not it's a true competition, and this is going head to head with only one man shall leave the ring alive. Mosery, at least publicly, is not. It, that's not the way he's framing it, as he mentions uh, in response to a question about Twitter. I think. It would be a mistake to underestimate both Twitter and Elon. Twitter has got a lot of history. It has an incredibly strong and vibrant community. The network effects are incredibly strong. Uh, and it's a bunch of advertisers pulling their budgets doesn't necessarily affect the network engagement at all. So Mosery is saying, hey, just because some advertisers are leaving Twitter, we don't think that's that spells the end of Twitter. It might actually help Twitter in the long run. And in fact, it might even help and not hurt over the long run. Right. So uh, Mosery is playing it a, a little more. He's soft pedaling it a little bit more, he thinks. And, and I actually don't disagree with him here that that threads could be supplemental to Twitter because just as I said before, on the one hand, you know, it's troublesome for Twitter that threads was able to get all these people that weren't tweeting to engage in this type of uh, activity, not on Twitter. But on the other hand, that just means the people who are on Twitter aren't necessarily going to leave and go to threads. Right. And you know, obviously, uh, uh, meta and threads are making a play for the celebrities and the influencers and the brands to you know spend more time on threads than Twitter. Um, but, you know, I, if they weren't super active on Twitter in the first place, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact I mean, in terms of news, uh, a circulation of 
resources and source materials and links and information and, and ideas, I think Twitter is still second to none and it's going to remain that way for quite a while. And so unsurprisingly, the most insightful piece that was written on this entire situation, Mike Solana of, uh, of the Founders Fund, he has a website or substack called Pirate Wires, one of the best writers there is out, out there these days and always has a really interesting perspective. And he laid this out in a post. I don't even know if it went to Substack. Uh, one thing he does mention, and I think if you're looking, and, and Mike Solana, he's very supportive of Elon, but he definitely notes that Elon, you know, uh, uh, in going after Substack and kind of severing Twitter from Substack made a mistake because the Substack people, I mean, they're natural allies. They're, they're mission aligned. They're ideologically aligned with Elon. So that was a mistake. And Solana thinks that Elon needs to, to repair that relationship with Substack. But other than that, I mean, he, I think he sees it, you know, as for what it is. Um, here's how he mentions what what Meta and Threads advantage is. Zuckerberg's greatest asset in Meta's war against Twitter is the population of his Instagram user base. But in the context of short form text, the platform's user base is also a curse. Instagram constitutes a massive population for the most part interested in pictures of butts, pup puppies and food. Competence in the realm of visual stimuli, whether pictures or brief video clips of gyrating women, is totally different from the lifeblood of Twitter and any would be Twitter clone, which is wit. So uh, he's, I guess he's saying what I said earlier in a bit of a different manner, that people on Instagram and that community that, that Threads is leveraging off are still going to be visually oriented at the end of the day. Okay, There's a reason that they weren't on Twitter before. They like pictures. That's, that's You can see that Threads also already highlights pictures and makes them a larger part of the platform. Twitter for pictures is not going to be that successful. That Twitter itself, for people that like to be a little more clever, both for good and for bad, that are more interested in information, they're going to still want to be on Twitter. Twitter and Twitter is still going to remain a dominant platform for it as he goes on with every new Twitter clone in the middle of a press cycle threads will experience massive short-term user growth but with Instagram operating at the scale of billions threads growth trajectory will dwarf every other previous entrant by hundreds if not thousands of times at this clip threads user base will likely surpass Twitter's ushering in a flood of obituaries from a press that lockstep hates Elon but shortly after the Twitter obituaries will come a threads crash of probably historical nature the problem will be content most Instagram users on the Instagram word vertical will weigh in visuals as that is all they're good at and most observers will fail to understand why they're not just back on Instagram or the Chinese spy app. If Zuck fails to attract some core subset of actual posters from Twitter with the lure of a far bigger audience, a group of people talented at this type of content who only want to be around other people of this type of ta talented content, his latest clone will be just be Shakira tweeting pictures of herself over and over and over again. Okay, so what is Solana saying? He's saying that Twitter it, it has its base and is what it is because the people on there are verbally skilled, their ideas skilled, that the people on Instagram are there and they're successful there because they're visually skilled and never shall the twain meet. So uh, he's not surprised that right off the bat, Threads is accumulating huge, humongous, massive, never before seen user growth. And that is going to challenge Twitter and that the press, because they all hate Elon Musk because he hates them in response, uh, they're going to you know signal, they're going to write obituaries for Twitter. They're going to assume that Threads' massive user base means that Twitter is no more and that everybody's left Twitter. But that's a smokescreen. That's an illusion. Because once again, all the people on Threads are just people who came from Instagram in the first place. They're not people who left Twitter or stopped using Twitter. And his prediction is that after, you know, as I put it, the initial dopamine spike or the initial excitement of Threads and interacting with your friends, once people from Instagram who went to Threads realize, wait a second, there's nothing really that great. I like Instagram better. Uh, I'm better at pictures. This photo thing is working out better for me. They're going to lose interest interest in Threads, and everyone's going to go back to their you know their perspective, respective 
of neutral corners. The people good at ideas and words will go to Twitter. The people good at pictures are going to go to Instagram. Um, I, I find it very incredibly likely that Solana's projection is going to turn out to be true. Um, however, you know, once again, we cannot underestimate the importance of this. Um, it's key to how the information environment and ecosystem is shaped and the collective mind is shaped going forward. Now, how odd that this social media battle between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg is almost in parallel to what even preceded the launch of Threads, where there's uh, kind of some online chatter about the two, um, you know, getting in the MMA circle together and then Elon going after Zuckerberg on Twitter, calling him a cuck. And, you know, obviously, I think that was a little tongue in cheek. But the battle of the social media titans, uh, we will see if it translates from their social from their respective apps into fisticuffs in the real world. I'm sure that one would be enormously popular, more popular than any thing that threads or Twitter could come up with on its own. Um, but we have not heard the last of this battle, but yet even more grounds for balkanization as those who have a little bit more of a liberal leaning kind of gravitate towards and embrace threads and hope that this is the end of Elon Musk and Twitter. Um, and Elon, you know, those who have enjoyed and benefited from Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and it's more free flowing nature there um, will kind of close ranks behind him. I think it's yet, a, you know, the many different fascinating allegories or, or battlegrounds for the new cultural shift in American society. So Me Too cancellations or Me Too style cancellations have operated a bit of a lower vibration the last couple years. Not as much heat around the issue, um, but another one popped up or at least an attempt at that popped up this week around actor Jonah Hill. And I think it one is kind of indicative of how now with less heat around the battle of the sexes around exposures of supposedly abusive male behavior that uh, the attempts at cancellation uh, are getting a little flimsier one. And two, this also exhibited an unfortunate dynamic about the blurring between what should should be relegated to private affairs, interpersonal private matters, and things that should go um, be injected into the public sphere is some sort of public controversy uh, in an attempt at personal catharsis or teaching a lesson or, you know, battling the patriarch or God knows what. And that was this Jonah Hill incident. His ex-girlfriend, Sarah Brady, I guess she's a professional surfer. Apparently, she needed some moment of emotional catharsis. And in doing so, she released a number of private text messages from Jonah having to do with their relationship. And these were supposed to be uh, an exhibit hanging him out to dry in front of everybody to see what an abusive, misogynist monster he was. Um, and clearly think, well, okay, there's got to be a line between what might just be something that is distasteful or or could be looked down upon or frowned upon as unfortunate behavior or, you know, too strict or uptight controlling behavior in a relationship between two people and something that's truly abusive that needs to be exposed publicly and to subject somebody uh, to this public scrutiny and controversy, obviously, in the hope of, you know, Sarah can call it whatever she wants. Hey, this is for her own mental health and benefit. No, I mean, this is clearly being done to injure and hurt the public persona and the livelihood of Jonah Hill. So let's take a look at what actually occurred here. The text that seems to be getting everybody's attention from Jonah to Sarah. Uh, from Jonah, once again, plain and simple, if you need surfing with men, boundary, uh, boundary list inappropriate friendships with men to model, to post pictures of yourself in a bathing suit, to post sexual pictures, friendships with women who are in, in unstable places and from your wild recent past beyond getting a lunch or coffee, I am not the right partner for you. If these things bring you to a place of happiness, I support it and there will be no hard feelings. These are my boundaries for romantic partnership. My boundaries with you based on these way, these actions uh, have hurt our trust. Um, Okay. Let's look at that. 
uh, this is a little more uptight than I would be in a relationship. Um, I don't really mind. You know, she's a surfer. She's going to surf with other men. Um, boundaryless, inappropriate friendships with men. I, I guess that's the eye of the beholder. But, you know, hey, don't be friends with any other men. I mean, maybe if, if there was specific abuse or physical touching or clearly a romantic angle. All right. That's weird. Um, post pictures of yourself in a bathing suit. Yeah, Jonah, that's a little much. You're being a little uptight here. Um, but he's pretty direct he's not being demanding or abusive or or kind of toxic in the tone um and he outright says just hey th this this is what bothers me and this is what i find acceptable or not acceptable and not you know hey you know biatch get back in the in the fucking kitchen here if you're not into this by all means move on it, it's not going to work out and no hard feelings right um so I think there's two issues at play here. One and the mo much more boring and cliched one is the battle between the sexes over whether this is actual misogyny, is this abusive, manipulative behavior, um, and the kind of he said, she said, you know, females are being uh, uh, claimed that females might be being hypocritical by criticizing this behavior because if a female posted that she wanted a man not to convert so so often um, with, you know, females that are not her and have female friendships, she'd probably be being applauded. Um, there's probably hypocrisy there. And, you know, you could look at, for instance, someone uh, uh, that account House and Habit, which does a lot of great commentary on a lot of these issues. Mention how Meghan Markle is kind of held up as a feminist hero for dragon uh, uh, hair. Prince Harry away from his entire family and imposing all these boundaries. Interesting how that doesn't seem to translate across the sexes, but whatever. Um, you know, and listen, you could look at some of this behavior by Jonah and, and some of his commentary, as I said, and say like, all right, you know, that that's a little too much. Um, one tweet that I think was relatively critical, but fair. Therapy words have ruined people's ability to talk about things normally. Jonah Hill isn't abusive, but also isn't expressing reasonable boundaries. He's just an asshole and kind of a pussy. Not not uh, unreasonable statements. You could say, like, listen, he's clearly exhibiting his own insecurities. This is due to who spent most of his life obese. He's clearly got some insecurities about his attractiveness and his appeal. Um, and, you know, he's kind of parroting in, in these text messages. Uh, uh, parroting in these text messages, things that uh, his therapist supposedly told him, and it's not necessarily the healthiest way to interact in a in a relationship, right? Um, bit of an asshole, but I mean, simultaneously, sure, you could say that he was being passive aggressive and he was saying things, you know, by this definition, any type of boundaries, expressing them. Are, are manipulative and if we're going to have that standard for manipulation then you can't just have any rules or boundaries for a relationship whatsoever and i think that's ridiculous and and this is clearly an exaggeration of what he was doing um another tweet uh at first i thought jonah hill brutally raped someone because of how women were talking about him but then i saw the story is the woman caught him having standards also pretty true I mean, the exaggerated tone in which he is being described, what this is trying to be portrayed as, is beyond ridiculous. And, and just look, but beyond that, the main issue here, uh, I think that's more important than the gender dynamics and the gender war, is the new social customs where people feel comfortable airing all their personal dirty laundry publicly, okay? Because whatever this was, I think we can all agree that this is not something that needed to be hung out to dry in front of everybody in the entire world to teach a lesson or to inform or anything like that. And this is really a selfish move on Sarah Brady's part. It was only for her own emotional satisfaction. And, you know, listen, if you can't, if without exposing this publicly in this manner, you can't maintain your own mental health and sanity, I'm sorry, that's incredibly immature. And this line just keeps on getting drawn closer and closer. And I think it goes back to something that I talk about a lot 
called victimhood inflation. We've inv- we've inflated the currency that you get from portraying yourself as a victim. And look at all those stories around those who exposed Harvey Weinstein or had you know true Me Too stories to expose, and they were lauded as heroes. And that, of course, incentivized a lot of people who didn't quite have as as well grounded a story or as much in support of their story or as relevant a story or, or experiences to then go ahead and want to be part of that too to get that victimhood currency get the applause on social media and get that satisfaction. It's incredibly, I don't think it's a healthy dynamic for society. And it's just, it's, it's incredibly selfish on those, the parts of these people. Um, I think that even you could take a negative view of how Jonah Hill uh, uh, conducted himself here and the boundaries that he tried to impose on his ex-girlfriend and still understand these were unfortunate interpersonal dynamics that should remain interpersonal dynamics. The idea that this is some sort of worthy of public censure or controversy is beyond ridiculous. Um, one guy who absolutely nailed this on Twitter, Mike Harlow. I mean, nobody said it better than this guy. The Jonah Hill saga is everything wrong with modern culture. Maybe he's perfectly setting boundaries and expressing his needs. Or maybe he's a controlling prick. We don't know. And most importantly, we don't need to know. We weren't there. I can understand exposing someone publicly when they're truly an abuser. But is this really going to be the standard going forward? There's no reason any of this should have been made public. Should I go through my phone and expose every guy I ever dated who was a dick? Or maybe I actually like the dick. You don't know. Is there anything that is private and personal nowadays? Or is everything just for public consumption? We live in a time that is completely devoid of a cultural identity. There's no art, music, or film that rises to a level where it can unify us or spark any sort of cultural dialogue. So we look towards public shaming for entertainment. It's a deeper tragedy than anyone realizes. Politics has replaced religion. Content has replaced culture. Cheap sex has replaced love. Public stonings have replaced entertainment. And government has replaced God. So whose side am I on in the reality show of the week that is Jonah Hill versus Disgruntled X? Neither. Nobody. My side is called Fuck Off and Leave Me Alone. I could not have said it better myself. Everything he mentions about how we're substituting anything of of substance for things that are completely frivolous. And then we're encouraging people to inject more frivolousness into the public discourse, which is what uh, incentivized a person like Sarah Brady to do this in the first place. And we got to stop gawking at these things like, yeah, there's a reasonable argument in favor of Jonah Hill as a dick. There's a reasonable argument in favor of Jonah Hill being just a, a, a normal guy who's trying to impose some basic boundaries on his relationship. We can. There are reasonable people who who can agree on that. But what we do know, and what you cannot disagree, what there is no no room for disagreement on. This is the type of thing that needs to stay, stay private. This had no business being injected into the public discourse or being put on display publicly. Um, and this is something that I think we're, you know, hopefully there's starting to be some pushback here and there's starting to be some disincentives and consequences to uh, trying to publicize these incidents beyond just accusing someone, uh, falsely accusing someone of a crime. Um, so Jonah Hill, uh, not a great week for him, although a lot of people are coming to uh, uh, to support him and, you know, believe that the, his ex-girlfriend went too far. And Sarah Brady, you know, Know, go get another pet. Go go surf. Isn't this surfing is supposed to be very satisfying? Okay, trying to enliven your soul or get your own personal emotional satisfaction from doing this type of thing is pretty. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Be gross and ugly, and uh, uh, hopefully there will be some consequence to this. 
And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another gentleman who was subject to some controversy this week, and oh man, if you ever thought this guy would be paired with Jonah Hill, didn't see that coming. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. A lot of heat around the Supreme Court recently, obviously with its more conservative bent and a lot of its rulings over the past year. You know, we had abortion in 2022 and then a slew of more conservative oriented rulings, I believe all which were very well grounded uh, legally, but clearly did make a lot of conservatives happy and a lot of liberals unhappy for the most part over the last couple of weeks. Um, most particularly around affirmative action. Um, So there's a lot, uh, you know, the hostility and the discourse is heated up around the Supreme Court. And for some reason, of all the conservative justices, there's six of them, Clarence Thomas seems to get the most public heat. People can speculate on why that is. Some people think, okay, what? He's the the longest reigning uh, conservative justice on the court. Most of the rest of them were chosen recently by Trump. A little kind of odd why Trump's appointees don't get more heat. You know, Brett Kavanaugh was getting all the heat a couple years ago, but they seem to have laid off him. Uh, Everybody seems to be going after Clarence Thomas. You know, his wife seems like she's a little bit of a MAGA QAnon cook, cook possibly. Um, But, you know, you'd probably lay off the wife. Um, Or, as many conservatives believe and, and assert uh, is that they that that the the liberal you know most liberals and the media in particular hate Clarence Thomas and they want to go after him because he breaks liberal orthodoxies about minorities as victims and is oppressed and unable to succeed in American society is that the case is that really what what gets their goad so much about Clarence Thomas um I don't know we don't wonder I think there's a good case for that um, but he was the subject of a hit piece this week in the New York Times the New York Times where Clarence Thomas entered an elite circle and opened a door to the court. The exclusive Horatio Alger Association brought the justice access to wealthy members and unreported VIP treatment. He, in kind, offered another kind of access. Uh, So the implication being that Clarence Thomas uh, uh, engaged in unethical behavior uh, because he accepted a lot of gifts from rich, wealthy people and supposedly in exchange for unique access um, or some sort of influence peddling on the Supreme Court. And that is clearly uh, goes against everything the Supreme Court stands for and is unbecoming of a Supreme Court justice. Um, is that claim true? We're going to get to that in just a second. Um, but, you know, in looking at that New York Times hit piece, we should look at some of Clarence Thomas's background and uh, his recent, you know, which which applauded heavily by conservatives and, you know, and uh, you've made liberals fuming um, his uh, uh, commentary and his ruling uh, in the concurrence on the, the case that struck down the affirmative action ruling last week. And um, I don't know, I think it says a lot about America. It's very well articulated and I think well grounded. But um, it's interesting that Clarence Thomas is considered a sellout or 
called, you know, and I see it on Twitter. This is not me making it up. And Uncle Tom gathers everybody's ire so much. I mean, his story is an incredible success story. I mean, he was born to an 18-year-old mother and raised in a one-room wooden house in Jim Crow era Alabama, made it through the entire education system at the top of the education system, and has succeeded all the way through his, his career and lived, you know, from all what we can all say is a fairly extraordinary life. Um, you could argue about his politics one way or the other. Um, uh, and if we look into his background and when he started to speak more critically of race-based preferences, I mean, he always points back to how at Yale, um, where I believe he went to law school, and then in his, the early stages of his legal career, he felt like he was always, it was just assumed that he got ahead because of affirmative action and that he had received the same accolades and accomplishments as other as his classmates, but based on a lower standard. And he believes that with affirmative action in place and being that everybody, there are a lot of people that have hard, hard, difficult circumstances and that a, a white person with hard, difficult circumstances doesn't necessarily have it better than a black person. And that, you know, in maintaining racial preferences, you've kind of stacked the deck reputationally against minorities because everyone just assumes that they got that they, they were operating based on lower standards. Um, as he said, I have long believed that large racial preferences in college admissions stamp blacks and Hispanics with a badge of inferiority. That's kind of the basis of his beliefs, and I don't know, seems like a pretty well-grounded one. I mean, we can ignore it all we want, but yes, I mean, knowing that there is the thumb on the scale, a lot of people will assume uh, uh, lesser accomplishments or lesser proficiency from the minority candidates based on the same, uh, the same credentials. So his opinion on the on the affirmative action case, I just think is so great that I have to read off a little bit of it. And it says a lot, I think, about him and about what the the solid, you know, valid basis was for for the Supreme Court uh, ruling against affirmative action. And that's Justice Contenji Brown Jackson, uh, who is the liberal African-American uh, Supreme Court justice, would replace the second founder's vision with an organizing principle based on race. In fact, on her view, almost all of life's outcomes may be unhesitatingly ascribed to race. This is so, she writes, because of statistical disparities amongst different racial groups. Even if some whites have a lower household net worth than some blacks, what matters to Justice Jackson is that the average white household has more wealth than the average black household, right? That you can't judge, and what he's saying is you can't judge every individual circumstance based on averages. Why are we giving, uh, a, and this is one of, I think, the strongest arguments against affirmative action. I mean, I grew up in a very wealthy neighborhood and I went to one of the best public schools in the country. There are a lot of African-American, Hispanic, Asian, and other minority kids that went to my school as well. And it was only about 40, 45% strictly Caucasian. Why on earth do the kids who went to my good high school in a good neighborhood get a, an advantage strictly based on their uh, the color of their skin at the, while, at the expense of other criteria, right? So you're basing the entire policy based on averages that do not account for the specific circumstances of individuals. As uh, as Clarence Thomas goes on, this lore is not and has never been true. Even in the segregated South where I grew up, individuals were not the sum of their skin color. Then, as now, not all disparities are based on race. Not all people are racist and not all differences between individuals are ascribable to race. Put simply, the fate of abstract categories of wealth statistics is not the same as the fate of a given set of flesh and blood human beings. And that I don't see how you can deny that. It's like you, if you cannot judge each individual circumstance based on group averages, particularly when those group averages are chosen fairly arbitrarily. Do we not want to distinguish between African Americans who trace back to a slave lineage versus those who came here, uh, have families that came here from Jamaica in 1937? I mean, there's got to be distinctions here. 
Are we looking in the the Caucasian communities as to you know uh, uh, legacies from the Mayflower versus my family who was was one step above slaves as serfs in you know Eastern Ukraine until they came here in the 1920s? I mean, if we're not going to distinguish between this, these group averages seem to be really arbitrary. As he goes on, accordingly, Justice Jackson's race-infused world falls flat with each step. Individuals with a sum of their unique experiences, challenges, and accomplishments. What matters is not the barriers they face, but how they choose to confront them. And the race is not to blame for everything good or bad that happens in their life. A contrary, myopic worldview based on individual skin color to the total exclusion of their personal choices is nothing short of racial determinism. I don't see how you can deny any of that. The quality of a person's life is based on so many different variables. This notion that it's just a linear, direct function of one aspect of their life just makes no sense whatsoever. It's not true. It does not hold up to any scrutiny. That's why the law, and when the law is applied properly, is to only address specific cases of discrimination. If you can prove that you were specifically in this unique circumstances that actually occurred to your life discriminated against based on your race, okay, consciously, and that should be the standard, then there should be laws that assist you in that. That should not be that should be prohibited. There should be laws that assist you and prevent you from being discriminated directly based on their on your race. You cannot create this de facto assumption that uh, that uh, racism or discrimination occurs in all cases just based on these group averages. I don't see how anybody can argue against that. But regardless, moving on, I was very much a fan of Justice Thomas's opinion in the affirmative action case. But moving on to the specifics and also why this is a really good case study in, I, I call it quasi-fake news because it wasn't something that was completely, utterly incorrect. But look what happens here. Look, the New York Times puts out a story with kind of dire, ominous language in the headline. Ooh, Clarence Thomas is, is trading, uh, is it has personal relationships with wealthy people and is taking gifts and trading access. And if that happened to be true, I'd be like, wait a second. Okay, this is a big problem. We cannot have Supreme Court decisions influenced by pow- by influence peddling um, between rich members of interest groups being given unique access to the actual operations and decisions made by the Supreme Court. I'm like, okay, wait, this is concerning. Let's see. Is there any there there? Is there anything? Is there anything here? Okay, so two pieces. One, what are the, what are the supposed, uh, uh, unethical rewards and perks that you know Clarence Thomas received. Did he engage in any unethical behavior? And what is the supposed access to the Supreme Court that the New York Times claims is so grave? Okay, so the rewards and perks. Uh, let's go through some of this stuff. Um, it's the Horatio Alger Society Association is a, a you know a, 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 a association for well-heeled conservatives and wealthy people, and you know I don't. It's kind of an it, in and of itself an irrelevant group, but gathers a lot of rich conservative people together and proclaims to be involved in public policy and legal issues. Anyways, uh, Thomas's friendships forged through Horatio Alger have brought him proximity to a lifestyle of unimaginable material privilege. Over the years, his Horatio Alger friends have welcomed him at their vacation retreats, arranged VIP access to sporting events, and invited him to their lavish parties. In 2004, he joined celebrities including Oprah Winfrey and Ed McMahon at a three-day 70th birthday bash in Montana for the industrialist Dennis Washington. Hey, people in L.A. might know Dennis Washington and his son. Anyways, moving on. Uh, Prominent among his Horatio Alger friends have been David Sokol, the one-time heir apparent to Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, In the 2000s, Justice Justice Thomas made annual visits to South Florida to help Wayne Huizenga, who uh, was the founder of Blockbuster and at one point owned the Dolphins and Marlins to pass out scholarships. And Justice Thomas flew in a private jet and um, blazoned with the Dolphins logo. And there's 
20 of these, right? That's it. But it's it's simply a carbon copy over and over. Uh, Clarence Thomas is friends with a rich, wealthy Republican person and went to a cool party or an exclusive party and went on this per- person's private jet and got some sort of gifts, um, which I don't think is great. I could look at that and say this is not a good thing. I, I think that a Supreme Court justice should probably hold off and sacrifice a bit in taking gifts and perks uh, and giveaways from you know wealthy benefactors and things of that nature. Um, so, but what else did, went on here? Did this influence? Is there any claim that there was a connection to influence any specific Supreme Court decisions? Did Justice Thomas give perks and gifts in return? Like, well, what happened here? I mean, if we want to look at some of the ethics, I don't think, that, to my knowledge, there is no direct specific ethical uh, requirement um, for a, a justice, you know, pro- a prohibition on them taking these or an ethical requirement that they report them. There's kind of, you know, uh, good custom and decorum that they report these gifts. And it mentions that in the early in his early years on the court, Justice Thomas did disclose about 20 private plane flights and an assortment of other gifts, a Daytona 500 jacket, silver buckles, cigars, etc. Um, but then after that, uh, the Los Angeles Times chronicle, chronicled his gifts and travel. And later after that, he stopped disclosing private flights and has seldom reported gifts or other benefits. Okay, I could look at that. That's not great. And if I'm looking, putting that in the column of good versus bad, I would put that all in the bad column. But if I'm then trying to determine, okay, how bad is this? Does this deserve punishment? Is this worthy of scandal? Is there truly some corrupt, cancerous element on the Supreme Court that would justify uh, Clarence Thomas being impeached or censured or something like that? And I'm sorry, but there's nothing even approaching that. I keep on throughout this entire article, and it's pretty long. I kept on looking for what is the actual corruption here? What is Clarence Thomas giving these people in return for whatever he's supposedly getting? How has his presence on the Supreme Court supposedly been corrupted? How how is this supposedly poisoning the Supreme Court and Justice Thomas' participation in it? And there's just nothing. There really isn't anything. The only thing I could even find that had anything to do with quote-unquote access, which is clearly an implication of decision-making, access and persuasion and influence, um, here's what they mentioned. At Horatio Alger, he moved in, uh, into the inner circle, a cluster of extraordinary wealthy, largely conservative members who lionized him and all that he had achieved. Uh, he was granted it unusual access to the Supreme Court, where every year he presides over the, gr- the group's signature event, a ceremony in the courtroom at which he places Horatio Alger medals around the necks of new lifetime members. That's it. That's the access they were talking about. That access access in the headline of the article that was supposed, supposed to imply something so grim, so dire, that's the access. That Clarence Thomas allows this group of freaking dunder have rich fucking goobers who like to have these completely you know ridiculous ceremonies about new members and like crown new members or whatever. They get to hold their new member lifetime ceremony uh, uh, at, at the Supreme Court in the chambers every year. That's literally it. That's the entire access that they were talking about in this entire article. I think it's completely ridiculous. Um, so is that fake news? Was this a, an instance of trying to you know, impair or impugn uh, Clarence Thomas's reputation off false implications of, of wrongdoing? Seems to be the case. I mean, it's completely, utterly exaggerated, right? And, you know, hey, I'd love, I'd love for Clarence Thomas to kind of chill on the private flights and taking gifts from, from rich people. I mean, I'd like the Supreme Court to operate a little bit more cleanly, but this is nothing even coming close to, you know, whether it's some sort of censure 
punishment and impeachment. This is beyond ludicrous. And clearly, uh, another instance of manipulating a headline to try to imply something worse about a person than the actual article supports. And this is, as I think we all know, this is a go-to. This is part of the greatest hits of the New York Times in the modern media. Um, So everybody be on the lookout for those manipulated headlines and always read the article and see, does this article support the message or the implication of the headline? And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Okay, another real peculiarity this week, uh, media outlets, mostly liberal, uh, uh, kind of identifying and writing kind of critical articles associating certain phenomenon with the right wing. But then you look in those phenomena seem to be actually healthy ones, positive ones that used to be at least historically associated with the left wing generally. And we kind of see this often, things that used to be coded left wing like uh, humor and free speech. I mean, free speech was always a province of the left. Um, liberal types, artists, progressives, they were the real champions of free speech for decades, the George Carlin's of the world, the Richard Pryor's of the world. Now in this upside down inverted clown world we live in, somehow free speech is now a right wing associated attribute. Um, but three that popped up this week that certain liberal media outlets, uh, MSNB, uh, MSNBC, NBC and Rolling Stone wanted to kind of demonize as right wing. But you look at them and are like, wait a second, look at the things that they wrote critical articles about. One, uh, criticism of birth control. Two, uh, health and fitness. And three, ending child trafficking. Okay, these are three incredibly strange articles. One of them, NBC, uh, uh, MSNBC, the far right's obsession with fitness is going digital. Um, NBC, conservative influencers are pushing an anti-birth control message. Alarmist statements about hormone hormonal birth control go viral on social media, but experts say they're not showing the full picture. And then the coup de grace. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine writes a really critical uh, uh, critical article about a film that was based on, you know, kind of mercenaries in South America that were helping free children child traffickers that seems to be at least somewhat grounded in fact and reality. Some movie called Sound of Freedom and the Rolling Stone article is Sound of Freedom is a superhero movie for dad, dads with brain worms. The QAnon-tinged thriller about child trafficking is designed to appeal to the conscious of a conspiracy-addled boomer. Okay, we'll get to the substance of that in a second. But once again, look at the oddities of what they seem to be criticizing in associating them with the right wing. Um you know, a lot of conservative influencers these days are people associated with the conservative movement or even those who aren't conservative um, are, are, you know, into more or pushing a, a message of more holistic, natural uh, health and wellness and things you put in their butt in your body and accepting that, hey, birth control, you're interrupting with the reproductive cycle. Um, it's certainly not natural. And, you know, maybe there are a lot of harmful effects of birth control that we're not looking at. And, you know, they're pushing for a more natural, holistic approach to health and wellness. That was historically all always associated with the left wing, right? All the natural food, uh, food stores, um, the whole foods of the world. I mean, the precursors, all those natural groceries, you know, it'd be associated with yoga, uh, hippies who did yoga for decades until those things became a little more mainstream in the 2000s and 2010s. But I mean, how peculiar is it that you've got uh, NBC trying to kind of you know, poison and contaminate the anti-birth control movement or criticism of birth control saying, oh, it's a bunch of right wing, right wing lunatics, right? This is very strange. They mentioned Tim Pool, Ben Shapiro and Steve Bannon have all made anti-birth control content in the past six months. Um, and here's another thing this is guilt, uh, guilt by association, assuming that, well, OK, if Tim Pool, Ben Shapiro and Steve Bannon seem to be speaking out against birth control, then obviously we've got to defend birth control, which is very strange. 
I'm not a female. I do have not never experienced a menstrual cycle, despite what they tell you that men can do these days. Um, but men never can and never will experience a menstrual cycle, a cycle, or understand what the physical impacts of birth control are. But you're clearly interfering with a pretty vital biological process, and, and I don't understand why someone is inclined to deny that there might be harmful effects by uh, from that simply to signal or or indicate some sort of political alignment, right? And why all of a sudden is are there people in the media or media outlets or Kind of more progressive people uh, in the who claim to be experts all of a sudden have to get so defensive about something like birth control because wait a second there's conservatives or people who are associated with the right wing that seem to be being critical of it why why would people in a healthier environment wouldn't it seem that everybody would just look at this issue and say okay wait a second there might be some harmful impact from birth control and regardless of who may be talking about this this is something we can all come together around but no that's apparently how divided we have become um, as NBC goes on. While some strains of conservative politics have spent years attacking birth control, the more recent resurgence of anti-birth control talking points comes alongside a broader push from online conservative creators against the medical establishment and treatments from vaccines to gender-affirming care, all of which have been recommended in certain circumstances by the American Medical Association. Now they admit it. They said the quiet part out loud. This has all become a game of team sports, right? Is that the the progressives and the liberal-oriented media decided that, wait a second, we think that these people are all crazy nutjobs who don't believe in the vaccine and they're not listening to the medical community who is now far more in favor of gender affirming care, i.e. sex change operations than they ever have. So we we need to close ranks around the medical community. So anything that pharma or the medical community is putting out, we're going to be more protective of and be skeptical of those people who are skeptical of that farm of pharma and the medical industry. And then some people can look at it and say, what's motivating this? Is this really but you know, some people will, will look for what I think is an incorrect explanation that the NBCs of the world are trying to pander and align themselves with the pharma companies just to get more advertising. They're going to get more advertising no matter what. Okay, the pharma companies are going to advertise wherever there are eyeballs. Okay, uh, just the fact that M- that NBC might not be as rigor vigorous as they'd like to be about opposing criticisms of birth control does not mean that all of a sudden far- uh, big pharma is not going to advertise with NBC if they think uh, that they could reach an audience there and potential customers. Um, I think this is truly just tri- you know hyper tribalism, tribalism on steroids, and that really the the people who write, who are the people who make eighty two thousand a year writing clickbait garbage for NBC.com, they now want to continually signal and are skeptical of anything that could be associated with anyone right wing, regardless of the content of the idea, and will close ranks and be more inclined to defend anything that is coded left wing. And that's what's going on here. I think I think uh, a phony empathy and tribalism is what is driving this, not necessarily the profit motive. When you look at other uh, idiocy from this week, the second one was, you know, as I mentioned before, MSNBC, the far rights obsession with fitness is going digital this was so embarrassing it got so much blowback they had to change the headline you cannot find that headline on the internet anymore let me see what the new headline is yeah they changed the uh the headline of that article to pandemic fitness trends have gone uh, pandemic fitness trends have gone extreme literally and then they of course have to throw in some bullshit about white supremacists white supremacists latest scheme to valorize violence and hyper masculinity has gone digital 
okay, a lot of those critical of recent progressivism say that it's trying to essentially elevate anything traditionally feminine and demonize anything traditionally masculine. Obviously, anything traditionally masculine is associated with physical accomplishment, physical virility, uh, strength, fitness, things that were essentially the, the cornerstone of our society until the industrial age and have been pretty important until the digital age and have become a little bit less less important to our day-to-day -day existence during the digital age, let's call it the last 15, 20 years. Um, and they are saying, you know, that uh, a lot of conservatives or a lot of people skeptical of recent progressivism are saying this is an attack on manhood and masculinity. And of course, they're not saying it, but then you look at something like the, the kind of ridiculous demonization of fitness or trying to associate any sort of physical well-being or physical accomplishment with, you know, the far right or white supremacists or God knows what. And all of a sudden, the thesis and the accusation starts to make a little bit more sense starts to prove out a little bit more uh, let's see what they have to say here um, this article from MSNBC physical fitness has always been central to the far right in Mein Kampf Hitler fixated on boxing and jiu-jitsu believing they could help him create an army of millions whose aggressive spirit and impeccably trained bodies combined with fanatical uh, fanatical love of the fatherhood would do more for the German nation than any mediocre tactical weapons training <sighs> does whoever wrote this not realize until about 19, uh, until post-World War II, where the uh, amount of, of countries and amount of humanity at war actively plummeted, until basically the early 20th century, manhood was constantly at war, in battle. Okay, but that when different groups encountered each other, this was a battle over scarce, scarce resources, and they were constantly fighting. That that was the state of man. Literally, not a hundred percent, but probably about seventy-five percent of the societies that have existed or at least succeeded over the past thousand years have had a have had a focus on physical fitness. You want to know why? Because you need that in order to maintain a society and not get conquered. The ridiculousness and absurdity of singling out Nazi Germany or a couple other fascist states that were obviously more. War or like, I don't know, you want to talk about uh, uh, militarist Japan? You want to talk about imperial Japan? You want to talk about 8,000 other societies of various uh, of various political inclinations? Okay, they all emphasize physical fitness because that's what you needed to be emphasized before you had 8,000 different types of cereal at the grocery store uh, and you had everything automated over the ha second half of the 20th century. That's how the world worked before then. Uh, so just a ridiculous attempt to associate those things with Nazi Germany. I mean, it's, it's a joke and you can see how embarrassed they were by the fact that they retracted the headline of the article. Um, and then just maybe the most peculiar one, Rolling Stone, which has just completely gone down the tubes. I mean, it's under Jan Wenner, who is the founder of Rolling Stone. It's under his son's rule right now. His son is the CEO, and like most trust fund kids, he doesn't know what he's doing. And this thing has just descended into complete you know, woke garbage just nonstop. And, and so you've got this movie that is, you know, a fictionalized version based on a lot of, you know, seemingly true incidents uh, about a guy named Tim Ballard, who was a founder of Operation Underground Railroad, an anti-child trafficking activist, um, who went down to South America or into some third world countries and tried to free, you know, or stop human trafficking and free children that had been abducted. And it's been proven out that, you know, at least some of his claims are accurate. Um, some of the other ones, uh, there seems to be some skepticism about, but clearly he uh, believes child trafficking is a big deal. And it's a problem and it's something that needs to be focused on and you know that the people who stop tra child trafficking are heroes uh, rolling stone doesn't seem to agree 
Rolling Stone thinks this is another QAnon fever dream. Look at the snobbery and look at the sanctimony of the writer who went to the uh, to the screening of Sound of Freedom and how he try how the writer tries to describe it in that how dare oh my god only these these Fox News watching Newsmax watching QAnon old white boomer types are the only ones who would kind of be enthused about the idea of a hero who goes and stops child trafficking. You got to hear this. Sound of Freedom lives up to that anticipation. It's a stomach turning experience. Stomach turning to watch a movie where people cheer on uh, heroes saving children who are, are the victims of child trafficking. I, I kid you not. This is what they say. Fetishizing the torture of its child victims and lingering over lush preludes to their sexual abuse. At times, I had the uncomfortable sense that I might be arrested myself just for sitting through it. Nonetheless, the mostly white haired, I think you know what that means, white audience around me could be relied on to gasp, moan and pity, mutter condemnations, applaud and bellow amen at the moments of righteous fury as when Ballard declares that's God's children or that God's children are not for sale. How on earth does a person experience this and have a an issue with it, right? That you could say, well, okay, maybe some of these people think that child trafficking is a bigger problem than it actually is, but it certainly is a problem. It's not something that does not exist. It exists quite a bit. And those who do put themselves on the line and put in efforts to go stop it, whether or not, you know, they, they might be, they, those other people might also exaggerate the scope of the problem. Like those are people who should be applauded. And if there's a movie that might, you know, show us in a little stark detail, the actual horrors of the child trafficking experiences, once again, does happen. It's happening right now. It's happening as I speak the sentence, right? Somewhere in the world. How does anyone have a problem with that? Another instance of the mega hyper and kind of grotesque tribalism where anything, no matter what, regardless of its nobility, regardless of its substance, regardless if it's a good thing, if you associate it with the other political tribe, and I'm sorry, but these days, at least recently, other than a, you know, a couple corners of, uh, of the Donald Trump world, it seems to be coming more aggressively from the liberal media. Anything that is associated even the slightest with conservative types like a publication like Rolling Stone will go and try to turn it and call it stomach churning. This is insanity. Um, but, you know, I, that's where our media is these days. That is what you're going to get from an NBC.com or an MSNBC or Rolling Stone. Odd, very strange, uh, does seem to sir, uh, once again signal a bit of a, a political re uh, realignment or a cultural realignment. You know, people with senses of humor and for enjoy free speech who like fitness and are skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry and like a more natural, healthy lifestyle. I mean, you could have pretty much, I mean, 75%, eight out of 10 times uh, in 1995, that was going to be a left-wing person. Apparently these days it's a right-wing person and a right-wing nut job, according to these uh, media outlets ha that have written these articles this week. Um, also just another one where we uh, topsy-turvy cats and dogs living together an upside-down inverted universe, but that is the media landscape that we encounter today. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks once again so much, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative.